0: all you fish enthusiasts out there whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish we'd like to welcome you to fish of the week your audio almanac of all the fish it's wednesday october 5th 2022 and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life i'm katrina liebek with the u.s fish and wildlife service in alaska
1: i'm guy ero and this week we've got a fish with one of the most interesting legal histories in the united states we're doing the snail darter finally
0: awesome Joining us to talk about this tiny Tennessee fish is Warren Stiles. He's a listing and recovery biologist for our Tennessee Ecological Services field office. And we've also got David Matthews, who's a fisheries biologist with the Tennessee Valley Authority. So welcome, you two.
2: Hey, folks. Thank you for having us.
0: So I was hoping one of you guys could help us first put this fish in context of what's a pretty large group of fishes that are referred to as darters. We've already covered the diamond darter and the holiday darter, and I'm curious where the snail darter fits in.
3: Well, you've, it sounds like you've covered a couple of the other genera in the group. This one is on the genera Persina, so little perch. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what they are. They're in the perch and walleye family, but these guys get four inches long, and it's a, a really diverse family. I mean, something like, what is it, 80 or 100 species of these guys? Banging around the streams mostly in the southeast.
0: And if you had one, if you were like looking down in a stream or had one in hand, if you were so lucky, like what do they look like exactly? What's their coloration? What's their body shape?
3: These guys are not as showy as the holiday darters. You know, they're they're modeled black and brown on their back. They're benthic fish. And so they're trying to look like the gravel below them. And then during breeding season, they get kind of this iridescent sheen down
2: the side. They're, they're just a, a little brown fish. I mean, I, I, uh, Warren's right. They're not as colorful as a lot of the darters that we have. I really love to see the look on someone's face when they see one live for the first time. They're kind of like, is that it? Really? That's it? <laughs> yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah. And yeah. that's okay. Th-
1: this is a fairly recently described darter, only described back in the 70s by Etna up there in Tennessee. Why do you want to call it a snail darter?
2: Well, they feed primarily on snails as part of their life history. So, yeah, hence the snail (laughs) darter.
1: Interesting.
0: You know, I've been hearing a lot about darters. We don't have any here in Alaska, but these guys tend to have pretty specific ranges, it seems like. Could one of you guys tell us where exactly these fish are found?
3: I mean, this one's kind of funny. When it was first found, it was thought to be just the Little Tennessee. The species name is Tanasi, which is the Cherokee town. that was right there near where it was found but now you know over the past 40 years been documenting expansion of the species and discovering new populations and now it's pretty much all through the tennessee valley
1: we've covered some species that are listed as either threatened or endangered what does it really mean for a species to be considered endangered you know, I feel like everyone listening kind of has a sense like, oh, well, we're worried that it might go extinct. But
3: technical definitions wise,
1: what what is an endangered species? What does that mean for
3: it? An endangered species is a species at risk of extinction currently throughout all or a significant portion of its range. It's a timeline difference. It's not a level of threat. It's a timeline difference. And so a threatened species is at risk of becoming endangered within the foreseeable future. What
1: does that mean, foreseeable future? How many years are we talking?
3: (laughs) It's, of course, not defined, and it's not settled in case law or policy. It's something that we, when we're going through the listing process, our recommenders, our decision makers within the agency, determine, based on the biology of the species, what kind of data we have, what kind of threats they have. This is a short-lived fish, three or four years So foreseeable future might be 30 years, you know, but for something like a tortoise or a sturgeon that can live, you know, 80, 90, a hundred years, that's only one generation. It's a different time step. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. I hate ambiguity like
0: that. (laughs) You should go to law school.
1: You mentioned it doesn't have all these stunning colors that some of the other darters have, but it just has this very special place in US legal history. The Endangered Species Act was signed in 1973 by Nixon. We got this dam project that's kind of partway under thing. And all of a sudden, we get this new species of darter that pops up right below it. it Seems like it could be endangered. It gets listed under the ESA. And now, this is one of the first major challenges because you got all these millions of dollars being put into Teleco Dam. And then there's a big lawsuit, a very famous lawsuit, TVA versus Hill. Is that right? TVA v. Hank Hill. Was it really Hank Hill? Yeah. Really? Henry Hill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is this the first species that kind of went up to the Supreme Court under that act when that happened?
3: First test of the ESA.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Tell me about TVA versus Hill.
3: So Lower Little Tennessee River was some of the finest farmland in East Tennessee. And so really it was the farmer's pushing back on flooding their farmland. There had been lawsuits around that that went nowhere. Then the snail barter showed up and it was a law student at UT Knoxville said, Hey, is this something that might be worthy of going endangered and that might make an interesting term paper? (laughs) And they ended up looking into this, they petitioned to list the species because we were talking about the listing process. One way that things end up on the list is if, the public petitions the service to list it and then we review that petition and it was termed listed and so it now had the protection of the act so this worked its way through the courts and it went to the supreme court saying this is a jeopardy finding we would cause the extinction of a species you can't build the dam and you know it was a surprise that it was ruled that way they had to halt progress on the dam lots of congressional representatives did not want the dam to stop. They saw the progress and economic advances proposed by this dam. If a Jeopardy finding was created, it could be appealed to the Endangered Species Committee, the God Squad. Mm-hmm. The God Squad.
0: The very high ups. Yeah.
3: It's, it's cabinet-level was- officials. Yeah. And so it was presented. And as with a lot of projects, the economic good of this dam was overestimated we'll say and the the secretary of commerce spoke first and said i don't think the math is there and ended up the god squad ruled in favor of the snail darter again
1: wow okay so how do we get the dam then if okay it it goes to the supreme court they say okay we can't do the dam they create a god squad to make it where okay maybe we got to work around where you can build the dam even the god squad says no going we got to save the snail darter how does Teleco Dam even get built then?
3: Well, here's the end run. One of the Tennessee representatives put a rider on the national budget exempting Teleco Dam from the Endangered Species Act.
0: So the dam gets built and then modified appropriately to take care of this fish as best as can go with it.
3: That dam did not get modified. No. It was kind of an all-hands rescue mission.
2: Surely, yeah. Yeah, around 1980, they started just looking all over the valley. Well, for two things, two reasons, for other populations of snail daughters and to look for suitable habitat to relocate these fish. The dam was certainly going to just flood the habitat that this fish lived in. Uh, This is the shallow watered river species, or at least that's that's what we originally thought. But certainly uh, 30, 40 feet of lake water over the top of it wasn't going to be good for it. So, to help out with that, a lot of the biologists working on Fish and Wildlife Service and TVA biologists back in the day, they transplanted a lot of these fish and moved them out into some other rivers, uh, created some arc populations, if you will, to help thwart that impending extinction. In around 1980, they found some in South Chick, uh, Big Suey Creek, Little River, Sequatchie River. That led to the 1984 declassification of the fish from endangered to threatened
1: uh, so I'm curious, of these new populations that have been found since Teleco kind of went in and you had that first population, how many do you think are descendants of these ARC populations, as you call them, and how many do you think are just populations that people didn't know about at the time?
2: Hard to, hard to say. Some of those yeah. those first that I mentioned they found in 1980, they were before any of the ARC populations. I mean, so, you know, they were evidently fish from teleco at one point in 2007 we found a fish a uh, snail rudder in citico creek citico flows into the little Jeez. tennessee into the upstream the, the, of teleco dam yeah Ooh. into the lake and i mean these fish could not have it, it would have been a far-fetched to think they swam through the lock at fort Loudon, took a light turn and headed up teleco <laughs> reservoir to find citico <laughs> creek So that really blew our minds, you know, where did this fish come from? About 2009, a a guy in Missouri named Dave Herzog, he developed this small trawl to use in fishery science. It's like eight foot wide and 12 foot long. It's a funnel-shaped net that we drag very slowly on the bottom of the river. So all of a sudden, we had some gear that could reach down deep and look for these fish. And Warren went out with us quite a bit and we started trawling all over the Tennessee river and we found them in Watts bar, Chickamauga, Gunnersville, Pickwick, Wheeler. We, we found them over 272 miles of river system mm-hmm. in the lakes uh, not everywhere, just in certain places, but spread out. We found all these new populations mm-hmm. that they never found back in the eighties when they were diving all these places looking for them. We were just like, wow, that's pretty cool. Now it's like, all right, we want to know where they're at. Obviously, they're in some other places. We'll keep looking.
0: What kind of things can we think about with dam operations and how those can be modified to maybe like, minimize or reduce impacts on fish living upstream or downstream?
3: That's really the key for this species recovery was changes in dam operation. You know, a lot of these dams were hypolimnetic releases while they were generating drawing water from deep in the reservoir. And Dave can talk more about how they improved the releases, but that really created kind of a cold, low oxygen environment downstream of these dams
2: originally. That's right, Warren. Yeah. In the early 90s, we started changing a lot of things. Uh, We had a big reservoir release improvement program. And that means a lot of things. We pumped oxygen into reservoirs. We forced air into reservoirs. We had surface pumps that would force the oxygenated water down to the intakes so that we could oxygenate our tailwaters. We also looked at how we operated these dams flow-wise. In the past, if extra electricity was needed, it may be drawn from only one dam and they would generate from that dam. But now when we need extra electricity, we generate from multiple dams. So we make the Tennessee system act more like a, a real river, and the flows are more consistent and they're more oxygenated. And we really believe that that has helped tremendously with this fish and other species as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, all across the U.S., I mean, it seems like dams are kind of a part of our landscape culverts, and you've got, yeah, fish that are adapted to certain conditions. And if you can, either modify operations to meet those conditions or i guess the other option is dam removals which is a different story but that's cool
2: yeah it's kind of a new thing when we're thinking about helping out biodiversity increasing biodiversity by the way we generate power and make electricity it's kind of a new thought you know when you can link those two together it's not only helped the snail We've had endangered mussels showing up in the Lower Tennessee River that we haven't seen in 20 years. I mean, you know, so a lot of things have benefited from this. People often ask, what have we done exactly for the snail dart? It's hard to pinpoint one particular thing. There's just been so many improvements over the years that we feel like the river's gotten better. That's why we started finding these new populations everywhere.
0: So where are we at today? Coming from, you know, the first Endangered Species Act case to reach the Supreme Court to today, 2022, what's the latest news and what do we have to be hopeful for with this fish?
3: Last year, we proposed to remove it from the Endangered Species Act, thanks in large part to the changes in the Reservoir Release Improvement Program. Um, (laughs) It's a mouthful, (laughs) Yeah, that PBA work, that we were. with. All right, it's fine. Yeah. RRIP that we worked with TVA on back in the 80s and 90s and then there's TVA surveys turning up these fish in all kinds of places. It's kind of the reverse of the listing process. We worked through the recovery plan and looked at the recovery criteria and the species was just knocking them out of the park.
0: That's awesome. Well, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's not every day that something gets recovered. How many species have been recovered under the ESA to date?
3: It's under, it's well under 100, and we've got like well over a thousand yeah. lists. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah so that's a, this is the first
3: fish east of the Mississippi to come okay. off the list.
0: That's super cool.
3: So, how long does the delisting process take? When are you going to end up doing this? It should publish a, around the time of this airing. And then it's, uh, 30 days for the listing to go into effect that it comes off the list. And then, you know, five years of post-elisting monitoring, which puts it on Dave. Dave's <laughs> heading
2: up. <laughs> we're, we we're coordinate so with the state. We're so looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we really are. We really are. We uh, Warren and I work together to come up with a monitoring plan for the next five years and to leave a little wiggle room to look for new populations.
0: What's next for you? What fish are you going to be focusing on next?
3: You know, a lot of these things, we work on them in the field office, and then it goes for review through the region headquarters. For the past few months, I've been working on small-scale darter SSA, species status assessment. So looking at whether it warrants listing or not.
0: Starting over. So I saw a quote from somebody from the 1970s. They called this fish... Worthless, unsightly, minute, inedible minnow. And to that, I think we could say a lot of things like size doesn't matter. It's not a minnow, it's a darter. But in all seriousness, what does this fish represent to both of you? And why should people care about something so small that they can't eat? Good question.
3: I mean, we can look at this different ways. It it was a tool as a, a way to stop a dam in some ways. it You know, everybody pinned it on the darter and it was... It was more than that. It was one pathway. But, you know, you'll talk to endangered species folks and they'll bring up the rivet um, theory of endangered species, where, you you know, if you're flying an airplane and you pop one rivet loose, there goes one species. There goes another species. You know, eventually you're not going to have a plane, but there's that. A lot of these are kind of small, they have a small niche, but I kind of think they're intrinsically important as what they are. To grow up in the little Tennessee Valley and hear anybody talk about like small fish, it's, you're going to hear reference of the snail darter. And then to like come into the career and get to mess around with taking it off the list.
2: (laughs) What an incredible opportunity.
3: We certainly can't do it by ourselves
2: none of us can, none of us can. And I'll, I'll reiterate that. None of us can. It takes partnerships. You know, it takes working together. This is a great example of that, you know, with Warren and the Fish and Wildlife Service and us at TVA awesome. and it feels good. It feels good to be a part of that.
0: Well, Congratulations. Kudos to you.
2: Good work, fellas.
0: All right. Well, get out there and enjoy all the fish, even those small ones that don't find their way to your plates.
3: Yeah. we've Plenty to work on.
0: Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebek, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A. F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.